Our Heavenly Father, we are grateful for a new day and a new week, a new beginning. Grateful to be able to come together as your people, to know that we come to sit under you and your word, that your Holy Spirit is at work in us, applying that word. Help us, Lord, to take it seriously, to receive it with eagerness and readiness, and um, help us, Lord, then to implement your truth, that we might see the blessings that flow from it. We pray for our families as we endeavor to be faithful in raising our children and grandchildren to your glory and for their good. Help us, Lord, to grow in this, to remain diligent in that task, and to have the wisdom we need to honor you uh, with this most important work. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Galatians 6.9 says, And let us not grow weary in well, uh, let us not grow weary while doing good, for in due season we will reap if we do not lose heart. And it's hard to think of a task that's any more demanding than raising children. It's long, it's arduous, it has many ups and downs, many discouragements, uh, and all kinds of reasons for us to lose heart and to grow weary. And so I think the application of this text to that task in particular, that Christian task of raising children to the glory of God, uh, is applicable. And so we want to be hopefully encouraged and helped in that task and in those labors as we consider this study. Raising children is delightful, a real pleasure. And it is also excruciating, frustrating, maddening, embarrassing, humbling, and painful. Oh yeah, and it's really hard and long. If that doesn't describe you, then you must not have children, or you haven't had them very long, or else you're just not paying attention. All of that is to say that parents need help, they need encouragement, they need hope, they need help, they need grace. So welcome to this series on the fruitful vineyard, filling the earth with godly children. In these lessons, I hope to lay a solid biblical foundation for raising our children to become mature and respectable adults who will be a pleasure to us, a pleasure to others, and who will glorify God and be a blessing to the world. Such children are the result of careful cultivation, and, the cult, and that cultivation involves us understanding what to do, how to do it, and when to do it, how much of it to do. We're not born knowing these things, and so we all have to be taught as we rely on the strength, wisdom, and grace of God. And, and really, in some ways, we could say this is not a child training class, it is a parent training class. Because we're the ones that need to be trained and taught so that we can then train our children. I wasn't born knowing these things, and so I have certainly had to seek wisdom and instruction from many, many others. Over my nearly 40 years of parenting and 34 years of pastoral ministry, I have listened to countless lectures and sermons and read more books and articles 
on this subject than I can remember. I learned and benefited from all of these in addition to my observations of many families, including my observations of your families. So there is very little in these lessons that is original to me, uh, other than my having compiled them and perhaps organized them a bit in, in a unique way. Uh, and so I've taken other people's thoughts, other people's instruction, and in some cases reformulated that and added a few exclamation points. While I will provide you a bibliography of the sources that I can recall, I'm also certain that there are many sources that I cannot recall, and therefore they will go unattributed since they're lost in the ocean of that accumulated information. There will be many things that I know that I picked up from others but can't remember uh, when. I can't remember where or how. If you think about it, that's really true of pretty much everything you know. Uh, you learned it somewhere from somebody, but you don't remember when or where. So let me just say thank you to all of them. Let me say thank you to my parents. Uh, and um, uh, as they taught me so many things and and then, uh, again, to each of you as well. Perhaps you too have read many books and listened to sermons and lessons on this subject. Uh, you probably, no doubt, had countless conversations with friends on, the, on this subject. It's a sensitive subject, partly because it concerns our children, and partly because we often feel quite insecure about raising children. And it's easy for us to grow defensive, which makes it hard to learn and grow. Yet even if we have already heard some of these things, and hopefully you have heard most of them in some form, even if we have already heard many of these things, we will still benefit from hearing them again because we forget, we disobey, we always have more to learn, or because... We need to do this because we're currently actively engaged in this task. We always need to know what the Bible teaches on any subject if we're to have any hope of seeing, in this particular case, a truly fruitful vineyard. Most parents are more, willing, uh, more than willing to admit that they fail in many ways. That's especially true in the, in the general sense. Uh, and so they perhaps will complain here and there about how bad their children are or how immature their children are, and they'll express frustration with the enormous burdens of the daily task of raising children. There, um, nevertheless, there's often an equal resistance to admitting particular failures, there's a natural defensiveness when the specifics are discussed. We have excuses and explanations and reasons why this or that happened. Of course, we have all evaluated everyone else's child-rearing. Uh, we may do that on the way home from church in the car as we have observed something perhaps good or perhaps not so good, and somebody makes a comment on what they saw. Uh, perhaps you and your husband or wife have had those discussions, again, maybe admiring a particular family and how well they seem to be doing and 
and perhaps shaking your head over others. Now, none of us are immune from this evaluation, that is, giving it or receiving it. And that's a good thing. That's why God put us in a community. We're here to learn from each other, both positively and negatively. Um, Humility, knowing that we too are being evaluated and that we too fall short. Um, There is really, especially in this area, uh, never room for arrogance. Moreover, this ought to give us much patience and grace with one another. Remember, when you're being critical of someone else's blind spots and failures, you have your own, and they're blind to you. And uh, part of what God's doing by putting us together in this task, we're marching to Zion together, a big group, and uh, here we are trying to all move in the same direction. There's always stragglers, there's always issues, somebody's always falling and getting hurt and and, uh, going off on a side trail, and together we are praying, encouraging, instructing, weeping, uh, rejoicing, and doing all these things together. I, you know, think about when a baby's born. We're, we, we have showers and we give gifts. We, uh, we are excited with a baptism. We do that corporately to bring that child into this community. We pray for one another. We eat with one another. We worship with one another. We are in each other's homes. As I've said many times, when you have a child, it's your child, but it's not just your child. It's a child of many people in in a different way, in different relationships. But we're a community here in order to help accomplish this task. And the more we can be on the same page with that, the more we work together to accomplish that, Uh, the more likely we are to see the fruit of that labor. So a few reasons as to why we need this study. Uh, Some of these are, again, pretty obvious, but I think it's worth thinking about as we begin this. I always like to know why are we taking the time to study a particular subject. Well, first of all, child-rearing is exceptionally hard work. In order to do this job right, the need for knowledge and productive labor is essential. The point of child rearing isn't hard work. It is hard work, but that's not the point. It's like farming. Uh, if you can figure out a way to do it better, faster, and cheaper, and more produ- in a more productive way, that's a good thing. And that takes knowledge. That takes study. That takes observation. That takes uh, evaluating what you're doing to see, is this the best way to do it? Maybe we ought to, to stop... Uh, digging and, and, and doing everything by hand and use some equipment that comes along that makes this more efficient. Uh, so likewise in child training, if, we have, if we're ignorant, if we don't know what we're doing, if we're stumbling as we go and someone else knows, and certainly the Word of God is, is the foundation for that, and we begin to do, do it in a different way, it becomes more productive and efficient. And so we need knowledge to do this. Hard work is not enough, nor is it the point. And we don't get to make it up as we go, or follow the current fads, or throw our hands up and quit, though you can do that occasionally for short periods of time. You know, like on a Tuesday afternoon, it's been one of those days. You can quit for a few minutes, you can cry, you can pray, and then you can get up and go again. 
Um, three things work together to undermine raising godly children. First is ignorance. We're not born knowing how to raise children. Fallen paternal and maternal instincts are not enough. Uh, we not only don't know what we need to know, we have also picked up bad information along the way, perhaps from our families. Your parents didn't do it perfectly. Perhaps they did it in an awful way. Uh, the culture at large is a mess. We pick things up there. Uh, we, uh, we have all kinds of misconceptions about children. Who are they? Why are they here? What is their nature? What is it I'm trying to accomplish? What is the goal? Um, we not only don't know what we need to know, so having picked up bad information, we need to correct some of that and we need to put some good stuff in its place. Ignorance, even with the best of intentions, still kills. Fatigue is the second problem. The drudgery, the repetition, uh, the physical labor that's involved on a daily basis is often overwhelming. The laundry, cleaning the house, organizing the schedule, getting people to and fro, cooking the meals. Everything that's involved in doing this job is arduous. We're sinners, and sinners uh, uh, sin, and sin kills, and it wears us out. The Apostle Paul writes, again, let us not grow weary in well-doing. For in due season we'll reap if we don't faint. And so, again, one of the reasons we fail is fatigue. We're tired. And sometimes you'll see that in a family where, you know, the first child comes along and there's great enthusiasm. Eighteen books have been read. We've got it all figured out. We're going to raise this one. This is our experimental kid. Uh, we're, he's going to, we're going to check all the boxes and run them through the machine, and he's going to produce what we have in mind. But as you go along, more and more kids, by the time you get to the last one, um, I'm reminded of a story of my, one of my great-great-great-grandfathers. They settled over in Timpson. They had 17 children. And there's still some land over there, but apparently... At one point, uh, they had gone down the road uh, to the next farm or, or place, good good distance away, you know, horse and uh, and wagon, and they had been home three days before they missed one of their children, who had been left behind at the other home. And uh, when asked about it, they said, "Well, we just, you know, we figured you'd come back eventually, so we didn't worry about trying to get him back home." Uh, we've done that kind of By the time we get to a crowd and we're busy and all of a sudden by the time number six gets here, we're tired. And, you know, what, used to, what, what in the past would have had us right on the spot dealing with a situation, we let slide because we grow weary. And it doesn't take six to do that. Really, just even one can do that over time. Um, and then negligence. Because uh, we're either ignorant or forgetful, and because we're fatigued, we are also tempted then to negligence. Proverbs 24, 30-34, I went by the field of a lazy man, and by the vineyard of the man devoid of understanding, and there it was, all overgrown with thorns. Its surface was covered with nettles, its stone wall was broken down. 
When I saw it, I considered it well, and I looked on it, and I received instruction. A little sleep, a little slumber, a little folding of the hands to rest, so shall your poverty come like a prowler and your need like an armed man. So, as we, uh, our first issue here in regard to why we need to study this is that child rearing is exceptionally hard work, and these are some of the reasons it is. Second, child rearing is exceptionally important work. It's not only hard, it's important. Pastor and theologian Robert L. Dabney wrote over a hundred years ago, the education of children for God is the most important business done on earth. It is the one business for which the earth exists. To it, to it all politics, all war, all literature, all money-making ought to be subordinated, and every parent ought especially to feel every hour of the day that next to making his own calling and election sure, this is the end for which he is kept alive by God. This is his task on earth. Third, God's word has much to say about child rearing. 1,361 verses use the word child or children. Another 143 verses refer to defendants, to, uh, excuse me, yeah, descendants. Forty verses refer to babies or little ones, and 40 refer to offspring for a total of 1,590 verses that refer to children. Now, to provide a point of comparison, the word salvation is used in 156 verses. Covenant in 293 verses, and redemption or redeem in 69 verses, and when you put all those together, that's 5,118. So there are three times as many verses that talk about children as do about those subjects. And I realize that's not an absolute kind of thing, but it does give us some sense that the Bible has a lot to say about children. And we don't know very much of it, most of us. We haven't taken the time to find out what God says. We're frustrated, we're ignorant, we're fatigued, uh, all of that, but we have not gone to the, to the source of wisdom, the source of strength, uh, to the point that we have a thorough understanding of what God says about the child and about us as parents. I didn't even mention passages that talk about parents. So there is a great deal said in the Bible. That's why we need to study this. Next, we have much to learn from others. As I've mentioned, both positively and negatively, this is one of the reasons God puts us in church communities. Again, most parents do some things very well and other things not so well. The blind spot or weakness for one set of parents may be the emphasis or the strength for another set of parents. There is no one without blind spots, and usually those who think they've got it all figured out have blind spots big enough to drive a truck through. And God has a way of revealing that over time. And so God put us together for a reason. We need each other. We need instruction. We need encouragement. We need rebuke. We need compassion. We need grace. Next, young people need to start preparing for this job now. Parents always have more to learn, and grandparents need to be on the same page 
with their adult children. In other words, the entire covenant community needs to know what God's Word says about this subject and then work together to produce fruitful vineyards full of godly children. These are your children and our children. We're the household of God. Another reason we need to study this, civilization depends on it. The original mandate was to be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth, but that mandate was given in the context of filling the earth with godly children, with God-glorifying image-bearers of God. That was the original mandate, and that's still the mandate. Malachi speaks of of the marriage covenant, and he asks, but did he not make them one, having a remnant of the Spirit, and why one? Why did God make husband and wife one? And the answer is simple. God seeks godly offspring. That was why. That's why your marriage exists. We'll say more about this in the weeks ahead. But your, your relationship with your wife and your husband is critical to this. It is the most important thing, in fact. That's why your marriage exists, is that so that it will glorify God and it will expand that glory by way of your children. And so if your marriage is not good, if your marriage is not glorifying God, then you cannot possibly do what needs to be done in regard to your children. That is the most critical part of this equation. The very last words of the Old Testament prophecy of the message, uh, of the message, uh, excuse me, um, the very last words of the Old Testament prophecy of Malachi is a message about John the Baptist, who is the forerunner of Jesus. That message, which is the message of the gospel, uh, concerns the hearts of children. Here's the deal: God had promised Abraham, "I'm going to make of you a great nation. I'm going to use your, you're going to raise your children." to love me and fear me, and if you do that, then I'm going to bless the nations. Many, if not most, in Israel had forgotten that, and that's why Malachi is being written. It's a a condemnation. It's really a lawsuit um, that's brought against them, a charge. And he says, I'm going to send Elijah the prophet, John the Baptist, and he is going to return the hearts of the children, uh, hearts of the fathers to the children, and the children to the fathers. You see, that was Abraham's calling. His heart was to be toward his children. And people had forgotten that. And so now the gospel is coming. And he says, Behold, I'll send you Elijah the prophet before the coming of the great and dreadful day of the Lord, and he will turn the hearts of the fathers to the children and the hearts of the children to their fathers, lest I come and smite the land with a curse. That's why I say civilization depends on this. As we open the New Testament, we read of the fulfilling of this promise as the angel tells Zechariah about his coming son, John the Baptist. Luke chapter 1, verse 17, here's what the angel says about John. He will also go before him, that is Jesus, in the spirit and power of Elijah to turn the hearts of the fathers to the children and the disobedient to the wisdom of the just to make ready a a people prepared for the Lord. Our children are not a footnote to the gospel. They are central to its work. It's what I call primary evangelism. It's the main place we spread the gospel is in our own homes with our own children. That's who God gave us. 
And He gave us all the tools to accomplish that. He gave us His Word. He gave us prayer. He gave us the church. He gave us everything we need to use in the leading of our children to be a part of His kingdom. That's primary evangelism. We must never forget the promise that God made to our father Abraham. And I was just referring to this, but, you know, in Genesis 18, God asked, Shall I hide from Abraham what I'm doing? Since Abraham shall surely become a great and mighty nation, and all the nations of the earth, civilization, will be blessed in him. For I have known him in order that... So why did God know Abraham? And I think we could ask, why did he know you? in order that he may command his household after his children and his household after him that they keep the way of the Lord to do justice and righteousness so that the Lord may bring to Abraham what he had spoken of him. So you got the picture? God says, Abraham, I'm going to make you a great nation. Through you, I'm going to bless civilization. So you can imagine Abraham's question. What, how do I do that? That's a pretty big job. Abraham, you go home. You go home and you command, insist, require, see to it that your children and your entire household follows me, obeys me, knows me. You do that and I'll take care of the world. I'll take care of civilization. So you go to your place and you, do, you be faithful to me there and I'll take care of the world. Now, we have, changing topic here a bit, we've all failed at many points in our child raising. Um, if not, you, then you probably haven't been a parent for very long. But you actually have. You may not see it all yet or the, the fruit of it, but uh, certainly we all fail. It's unavoidable. We have sinful, which means sin-filled children, because they were born to sin-filled parents into a sin-filled world. You can't raise children for 20 or 30 years without learning a lot. So every trial that your child brings to you, uh, every, every trial your child has is a trial for you as well. God is testing you. God is teaching you. You're a child. You're a child of God, and he's using those things to instruct you. So all those things you're trying to teach your children, God is also teaching you. Profitable child-rearing always requires an enormous amount of God's grace. We can't save ourselves by our own good works, neither can we save our children by our child-rearing. Nevertheless, God does bless covenant faithfulness. Faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of God. Remember Paul told Timothy, you've known the scriptures from the time you were a nursing baby, which are able to make you wise unto salvation. So Timothy's mother and grandmother were faithfully teaching this nursing baby the Bible. That's one of the means God uses, his word. His word brings faith. 2 Timothy 3, 14 15, But you, Timothy, must continue in the things which you have learned and been assured of, knowing from whom you have learned them. That's Paul, but also his mother and grandmother. 
and that from childhood you have known these scriptures. Train up a child in the way he should go, the Proverbs say, and when he's old he will not depart from it. So sitting through another child training class can be difficult because it makes us see and feel our failures and shortcomings. Everybody in here is in a different place, situation, circumstance with raising children. But I'd like to suggest that uh, you do these things if you're feeling some of that failure. First, confess your failures to God and he will forgive you and cleanse you from all unrighteousness. Of course, he already knows all your failures. He knows a bunch of them you don't know. So confess the ones you do know, ask his forgiveness, and he'll forgive you, and he'll cleanse you. And so then you can be blameless, not sinless, but blameless. So in other words, when you do something wrong, own it right away, confess it, and God will. God still loves you. God wants you to learn and grow. Second, learn from your failures so that you can grow and you can help others. And then, I think this is important, rejoice that others are hearing and learning perhaps what you were never taught, what you didn't know. Some years ago, uh, in another church, there was a family that had five children, and uh, three of them were, the best way I could describe it, disasters. One of them was a half a disaster. And another one was pretty good. And this couple, older couple, uh, who were very committed to Christ and had come from really terrible backgrounds themselves, uh, were always talking about their covenant children. And I would, when I first knew them, would kind of wince when I would hear that. um, Because I saw their covenant children and the situation. And then there came a time for me to do what I'm doing here, teach on child rearing, and I was thinking about them and how uncomfortable this must be. They had just been through something big with one of their wayward children. And so when the lesson was over, they came to me and said they wanted to talk, and I thought, oh, you know, they're going to be upset. And they just said, Pastor, we want to thank you for teaching these young people, these young parents, what no one ever taught us. And we're grateful that you're doing that now. And that's the that's attitude I think we ought to have together. We're, we're, we're a family, and so we want to learn from each other's mistakes, and we want to see everyone prosper. Now, this work, too, is multi-generational. It doesn't just stop with me raising my kids. The goal is to see them raise their kids and, and so on down the line. Psalm 103, for as a man, his days are like grass, as a flower of the field, so he flourishes. For the wind passes over it, and it's gone, and its place remembers it no more. But the mercy of the Lord is from everlasting to everlasting on those who fear him, and his righteousness to children's children, to such as keep his covenant, and to those who remember his commandments to do them. So we we come and go, but we also leave something behind us. And that's God's work, and we need to be thinking that way. It's not just about getting them to a certain age and then say, okay, we're finished, they're on their own now. The goal is to see that perpetuated. One of the central features of God's purpose for our households, then, is a multi-generational purpose. He has uh, promised 
to be a God to us and to our children and our children's children. And so the Word of God has much to say about how central this is to the gospel itself. I said it's primary evangelism, but not just for the children in your house, but for your grandchildren and great-grandchildren. That's how the gospel primarily grows and spreads. As a parent, you're engaged, again, in the most important and powerful work imaginable. And yes, most of it goes unseen and unappreciated by most people, but not by God. But we did not see and we do not fully appreciate the millions of hours of faithful Christian service that went before us. How many things did your mother and father, whoever raised you, what did they do for you? You say, well, some of you might say, well, not much. Well, they did some things. You're here. You're alive. And certainly, collectively, we can say we're all sitting here benefiting from many godly people who went before us in history, many parents that influenced culture and so that we could hear the gospel. And so... Um, the impact of that labor lives on. We're part of a great river that flows downward through history, and it matters what we put in upstream, and it matters what we contribute, because it's going to flow downstream for many generations. So let me say something about how the grace of God has worked in our family, and I do emphasize the grace of God, and I, I think I've told most of you this story, so I'm going to give you the shortest version of it, but both of my grandmothers were adopted uh, by Christian women, single women, uh, one divorced and one widowed and raised in those Christian homes. And I know something about their, the biological families they came from, and in, and in one case especially it was quite a disaster. But that, those adoptions into Christian homes and being raised in Christian homes changed the course of our family. Uh, so, in, in one case, grandmother born in 1899 and one in 1916. And um, so, all, both now over 100 years ago, uh, where they were born. And God used that. They then raised my parents uh, feebly, not with a lot of knowledge, not a lot of depth in the Christian faith. But they were in church and they were taught the Bible and... They grew up Christian, and my parents met in a Christian church uh, and married, and we almost never missed going to church. Um, unless somebody was, was very sick, we went. And uh, so that was the way we grew up, and we were taught the Bible and taught uh, to trust the Lord. And then, of course, we had our children, and we were more self-conscious about Christian education and what I, what I see in our history is each generation did some things better. But they could only do them better because that previous generation provided the platform for them to reach higher, to stand on the shoulders of those who, who went before them. And so that's a way to look at this. Is it's, it's a multi-generational advance uh, of establishing Christendom, not just in your house, but in your community and, of course, in our churches and in the world. And so um, we made a lot of mistakes. 
but our story isn't over yet, and I remain hopeful. Every one of us, every one of you, can make decisions that will make a positive difference in the future of our families. Now, culture. Why is our culture, our broad culture, in the mess that it's in? Do we really have to ask that question? Is it because we're paying attention? Is it because we're doing what God said to do? Is it because we're dedicated to raising a generation of godly, responsible adults? Messes are multi-generational also to the point where we don't even notice messes anymore. They look normal. You see, a culture has its own language, laws, customs, traditions, and assumptions. Cultures always shape, and therefore parents must self-consciously make sure that their children are being shaped by a thoroughly biblical culture in their homes. When we forget that our family is a culture, the outside or alien cultures, I promise you, will fill the void and do the shaping for us. Somebody is going to shape your children. Some culture is going to shape your children. We live in a time that's increasingly aimless and clueless about child-rearing. Our culture is even confused over masculinity and femininity and how God designed each of us to complement each other in the home and in raising children. But our culture is also confused because our, our households are confused. God's purpose for the family is to provide a culture that will mold and shape our children according to the standards of His Word. And if we don't know what those standards are, then we can't possibly achieve that goal. And so many families drift from day to day, unsure, confused, just trying to muddle through to get to the end of the day to start all over again tomorrow. Moreover, the pop culture and political culture are working in antithetical ways uh, to the biblical culture that we're called to. Too many of us want to flirt with and let our children flirt with the world. God is jealous for you and for your children. James 4, 3-5, adulterers and adulteresses, do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? Whoever therefore wants to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. Or do you think that the scripture says in vain, the spirit who dwells in us yearns jealously? If you're not developing a distinctive and rigorous Christian culture in your home, then don't be surprised to wake up and find your children attracted to and shaped by an alien culture. You see, the other side works day and night to capture your children's hearts and minds. I can't overemphasize this point. Which culture has the most face time with your children? If parents won't take the lead, then the world is full of those who will. If parents, uh, if, excuse me, if a child is left alone, he will not remain alone for long. A child is malleable, moldable, and he will either be shaped by his parents 
or he will be shaped by something or someone else. Apple and Google and Facebook and much more are portals into your home, for example. Do you know what's flowing through those portals? It is your job to find all the black holes in your house. All the places where an outside culture sneaks in or where your child gets sucked into the world. Your job as parents is to monitor and control all the cultural influences. You must teach, disciple, pray, and provide an example. Pastor Doug Wilson made this statement, your children should view the home not simply as the place where they eat and sleep, but where they are taught and shaped. They should view home as the center of their world. They should see it as their primary culture and always view the larger culture in the light of what they have learned at home. Now, since the family is an inescapable culture, the only question left is, what kind of a culture will it be? How do you talk to each other? Do you pray about things? Is the Word of God present? Is worship a part of your lives? Do you resolve conflicts quickly, as the Bible instructs? Do you encourage one another? Do you help one another? Do you serve one another? Do brothers and sisters love one another? That's loving your neighbor, right? I mean, I'm just hitting the really, really high points here, but just giving you a sketch there. That's what a biblical culture looks like. That's what your house should look like. So what we hear and what we see and what we experience there, that's the culture. You're molding and shaping self-consciously and actively or mindlessly and passively, but by what standard? Even when families are unaware of the culture of their households, unaware of any standard, that becomes the culture and no standard becomes the standard. The Bible says that we are to not be conformed to the world, but to be transformed by the renewing of our minds. And if our minds are not renewed... When it comes to the subject of child-rearing, and unless the true Christian culture is reestablished in Christian homes, we will never, ever see a Christian culture anywhere else. Thus, the many unchristian assumptions about the home must be replaced. Many parents are fearful of or reluctant to assume the full responsibility of providing for the culture and the nurture of their children. Yet God lays that responsibility at the feet of parents. We're called to build and maintain a godly culture in our homes through teaching, through discipline, by loving, by praying, and protecting our children. And this will involve giving them what they need, not necessarily what they want. Now, our homes should be the best place on earth. Fathers and mothers must understand the biblical vision and establish to move and maintain the essential culture. Now, we're not just talking about outward moral behavior. Parents, we have to have their hearts. We don't need just good children. We need regenerate children. We need children that love Christ from the heart. Perhaps we don't think about this as parents, but when God gives us children and places us over them to raise them, We're assuming a duty that carries the utmost importance 
to fail in this work has eternal consequences. The greatest of care must be given to this labor, both in the planning and the execution. Jesus warns us not to cause a child to stumble. But whoever causes one of these little ones to stumble who believes in me uh, to sin, it would be better for him if a millstone were hung around his neck and he were drowned in the depth of the sea. What an ominous warning. R.L. Dabney said that when a man and a woman have a child, they have kindled a spark that can never be put out. That child, blessed or cursed, will exist forever and ever. Some parents neglect their children by ignoring them and others by indulging them. Both kinds of neglect indicate selfish parents and both kinds of neglect harm children. We must be servants to our children, but we must not cater to them. It is helpful to remember that, in fact, we're not raising children, we're raising adults. And so, parents, we turn to the Lord and his word. Moreover, we're also relying on his grace and his spirit to instruct and strengthen us while trusting him to prosper our labors for his own glory and for the good of our children. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for our children. We thank you for our families and our church. Help us, Lord, to take this seriously, to learn, to grow. Grant us your grace and strength, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.